Hello and welcome to Time to Show Up, a new podcast and online community hosted by me, Natalie Nahai. And me, Dr. Aaron Balick. Natalie is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, and expert in psychology, persuasive tech, and human behavior. She hosts the popular podcast, Natalie Nahai in Conversation, and recently launched the Flourishing Futures Salon, offering places to gather and explore how we might meet today's challenges. And Erin is a well-known psychotherapist, consultant, and author of two self-help books and the seminal psychoanalytic text, The Psychodynamics of Social Networking. He's a leading voice in the public understanding of psychology and how it can be directly applied to businesses, individuals, and society. We've come together because we both share a passion for helping people flourish in the expression of their personal mission in their work. By drawing on our different but complementary skill sets <laughs> and experience, we'd like to engage together with our guests and aim to draw out the lessons they have learned along the way so we can share them with you. We have invited these guests specifically because we felt that there was so much to learn about their personal and professional journeys. These interviews are distinguished from many others you may hear because they penetrate into the personal lived experience of our guests rather than just learning about what they may have done. Now, we call these guests champions in recognition not only of their impressive accomplishments, but also because they have agreed to be transparent and vulnerable with us in sharing their personal stories publicly. At the end of each interview, Natalie and I discuss the major themes that we've identified from which we can apply broad models from psychology, behavioral science, and other disciplines that can be applied by anyone. Now, we are beginning by sharing these stories freely by podcast and video. For those that would like to learn more about the theories, models, and practices we suggest, we have created a special online community for like-minded people full of resources, practical guides, live AMA sessions with yours truly, and so much more. And you can find out more at timetoshowup.org. Natalie, shall we begin? Let's do it. Today we're speaking with Dr. Roz Watts, a clinical psychologist and researcher renowned for her groundbreaking work in psychedelic therapy, particularly with psilocybin-assisted treatments. Having led the pioneering psilocybin research programme at Imperial College London, Roz has co-authored scientific papers exploring the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, and she has featured in various podcasts and interviews discussing the transformative impact of psychedelic experiences. Roz is also the founder of ASA, an integration community designed for connecting to the self, others, and the natural world. In today's interview, we explore how to navigate the emotions of grief, rage, betrayal, and dread, how to recognize crucial moments for action, and we also explore resilience and the addictive nature of constant intensity. We touch on humility, equanimity, and making sacrifices, advocating for deeper conversations and embracing one's darker aspects, and we also touch on the importance of fostering supportive communities. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Roz, it's delightful to be talking with you today. Thanks for taking the time to show up with us. How are you? I am. I'm sitting in a beautiful place and it's Friday, so... I'm pretty good. Pretty good. How are you both? Yeah, really good. happy. Yeah. And energized and excited for this conversation. Yeah, very happy to speak to you. Really looking forward to it. <laughs> so, shall we dive in? Um, we're going to frame this question slightly quirkily, I think. Um, we'd love to start by asking you how you would describe your creation myth of where you are now. 
Uh, and you can take that where you where you would like. But what brought you to this point? Maybe events, mm. ideas, synchronicities, perhaps key moments that have brought you to this point. Mm. And in, in a, in a I think, where's this a big brief-ish. question? Yeah, in a briefish kind of way, because we're going to dig into all of that. But if you could yeah. give us like a, you like know, looking back, a narrative of highlights, lowlights, and uh, yeah, meanderings. Yes. <laughs> I, I guess kind of two two ideas spring to mind. The first one is kind of more succinct and quicker to explain, which is is the wounded healer analogy. And it's I'm a clinical psychologist, and it's so interesting to think that you know, when I trained, there was this sense of like, we're all fine, we're the professionals, we sit on this side of the chair, of the table, and we're the ones with all the stuff sorted out, and you are the person that needs help, and we're going to help you, and I was quite attached to that that story, and, and that that idea, and it's only been the decades since my training that I've like, whoa, okay, the, the 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 wounded healer analogy. I don't even know if healer is the right word, but the the layers and layers and layers of of childhood um, resonances that I'm still only just finding now, and that it's you know understanding more than ever that there is no difference between there is just no difference between the person taking themselves to the healer or you know therapist for some kind of intervention and the person offering that. that, And I've realized that with my colleagues as well over the years, that just there's something very kind of, I don't know, almost shocking for a while of realizing that that idea of there being some people who are selected to be the kind of the ones that have got it all figured out, it's just, it's not really, it's not, I don't think it's really ever the case. And it's a, it's a huge defense. Um, not saying that everyone has got as many issues as I have, you know, people are at different layers of their own journey. But certainly for me, there's a kind of humility in this moment of like, wow, okay. It kind of sometimes feels like funny to be in, in positions where I'm, you know, looked at or spoken to as a kind of expert when I kind of feel like saying, you have no idea of how confused and you know, sometimes lost I am and how my own, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not there yet. I'm I'm so far from being there. So yeah, I think I think that's in a way th- there's something also very beautiful about realizing that the 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 wounds are where the light gets in and that's where your empathy and compassion really come from. And so often when you meet people who are working in something they're really passionate about and you ask them where that came from, they will tell you that it, they had a childhood experience. For example, this isn't my experience, but a parent that was addicted to substances and they then became somebody that worked with people in addictions or something linked to kind of helping people break cycles. So often what we're doing in the world comes from the sacred wound and that's where we weave from. So I think just knowing that and acknowledging that is a real opener because it really allows you to sit in that space of, yeah, you know, I've been hurt too and I'm not a perfect person rather than trying to like wear the costume of a highly evolved, um, enlightened human um, and realizing that I'm not there yet. Could you maybe say something about what brought you to that realization? So it sounds like there's a, 
a kind of idealization, I think, that we all have going into the field, right? And the people, I think less so because we're exposed, you know, through, you know, anybody looks at like mental health Twitter and sees therapists talking to each other, they'll learn very quickly that, you know, we're not the most resolved people in the world. <laughs> but um, could you say something about your process of maybe, if it was idealization, that's my word, not yours, but <clears throat> looking at this field, deciding that you're going to be in that field, and then pushing on 10 years in or however long it took a kind of like, oh, it's like this. It's not like this. You know, what, what, can you say something about what happened and how you maybe found your wound that through which you were going to start doing your work? Mm, Yes, yes, absolutely. So I think that ultimately, yeah, the 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 journey is there's like specific chapters and stages on the journey, and it has felt like the other analogy I was going to use is of like a deep sea dive and diving down through the murky depths and finding the oyster and finding the pearl of wisdom and then like swimming up the other side. And in that kind of framework, that analogy, I would be at the bit where I've kind of I've only just found the pearl, but I'm still at the bottom of the sea, going ah, you know, that's where I feel like I am. <laughs> the the different stages were. I wonder if I can use the pearl dive analogy for the stages or, or maybe not. I, I came from the world of clinical psychology, still very much, yeah, swimming along the surface of the sea, like la, 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 things are fine. My life is ticking along quite comfortably, thinking about what I'm going to do at the weekend and, you know, preoccupied by surface level things. And then suddenly, big deep dive down into the murky depths, which was discovering, um, initially it was like this exhilaration of like, wow, psychedelics are really powerful. Having been a therapist in the NHS working with cognitive behavioral therapy and feeling frustrated, it's like, there is something that really works, wow. And the amazement and the incredible hope and optimism that that brought and the excitement of working with psychedelics because it's so wonderful working with people with psychedelics, it's so, fun and creative and powerful and moving and kind of amplified so I felt like I'd kind of you know just walked into this like wonderland of hope and possibility and you know you work with music and you have the it's just such a creative way of working that it feels almost like am I going to be paid for this you know this is this is a dream like this is what I do I'd pay to do this like I often thought about my work as a guide I would pay to be a guide rather than expecting to be paid. It's such a privilege to be there in people's moments of soul, you know, getting close to their soul. It's beautiful and also very difficult sometimes. But so I was really enamored with that and very enthusiastic. And then I suppose really my optimism and my own idealism around what that could be met with the kind of steel wall or like the muddy layer of the bedrock of the system and how academia works, how the, the patriarchy works actually as well, like how systems that I hadn't really, coming from the NHS, which is very much a kind of matriarchal society, it's run by women, it's fueled by women, then, and then coming into this very kind of male world of academia and feeling the difference between the way those two worlds operated and feeling just the kind of um, the competition of academia as well, like the fact that it's a bit dog-eat-dog, it's quite, everyone's out for the funding, it's very limited, it's 
very much a competitive framework rather than collaborative, whereas the NHS had been very collaborative. So finding myself in this world that was like there was a lot of status, there was a lot of money at play as well, um, a lot of kind of cool privileges. Like it was, you know, there was a real sense of, ooh, this is, this is something that people want to be involved with. The stakes are high and there's a lot of pressure and competition. And it's not just about the healing work. It's also about politics. And so I think, I think I've, I found that. And also that the, the idea of how these things are funded. So in the NHS, because it's a free surface, a free surface, it's, you know, you don't really see the way, um, the pharma, you don't see the way the pharmaceutical company um, is, is kind of running things, although, of course, they are funding many of the medications and many of the services that the NHS delivers. But at the point of access or the point of delivery, you don't really see that. It's quite easy to be idealistic about, oh, we're all here just helping and it's free and I'm giving you my time. And it's Whereas with the psychedelic world, because it's not in the NHS, you see how these drugs require millions of pounds for them to be developed And so the reality is that I very quickly, almost as soon as I got involved in the psychedelic field, found myself involved with, you know, having conversations with venture capital companies and um, the the funders of the the investors and the funders who were paying for the research we were doing and seeing the pressures there as well of like um, of how that all worked. And I think I was just really quite idealistic and naive and found all of that I'd say in a way you could summarize it all by saying like the system I was kind of I've always been a bit rebellious a lot of people in psychedelics have that tendency and I was coming up against something that felt very paradoxical because I was like okay so this is supposed to be the new paradigm psychedelics are bringing in the new paradigm but for me the new paradigm is all about collaboration and the network the web of life and the old paradigm is all about dominator hierarchies individualism and uh competition and so it was kind of a bit confusing to think like oh i'm i'm going out of the nhs which is like the old way into the new way which is psychedelics but actually the way of working in the nhs was much more in line with those ideals around collaboration and working as a web as a network than the psychedelic world which from what I could see there was a lot more of a sense of like ego and um, power dynamics and almost less transparency as well so it was it was like hmm, if this is the new world I think maybe I want the old world you know like this this doesn't feel this doesn't feel like how I thought it would feel. And I think I had some kind of idealistic vision of like, in the psychedelic world, we're all going to sit around in beautiful huts in nature and we're going to like have incense and music and we're all just going to be giving each other our time and our care and healing each other and sharing with each other. And I mean, I guess, I don't know how that works in the real world. And I'm starting to think about that, how that works in the real world. But I guess that's a dream that we're starting to dream in a way, but it's not yet landing. And I suppose my fear of those early years in psychedelics was around, oh God, that dream's never going to happen because it's going to, this precious gift, this precious tool will be co-opted by the status quo and its magical gifts and, and offerings 
that can change the paradigm will be blunted because it will be housed in a system that is so strong and is so difficult to contend with that the beauty and the potential of it becomes flattened and limited and ultimately just becomes part of the same system. So I felt very sad and hopeless and I guess reacted sometimes quite badly to that very you know in quite a childish way sometimes quite idealistically so you know you asked um Aaron about the you know the 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 learning and I guess it's been the the most recent chapter has been around learning about my own wounding and how my own kind of anxieties or my own particular ways of relating have and my own judgmentalness that was the, the main learning how judgmental I can be how that has played out in a situation where I kind of now stand humbled realizing that I suppose it's like that Rumi quote you know there's a field between right and wrong let's meet there it's, it's realizing how angry and kind of um you know that activist quality of like this is wrong we've got to change it and how actually the energy of that just creates sometimes in my experience creates fracture and rupture and that's yeah so I kind of stand humbled realizing that the pearl that I find in those murky depths is around um having the humility to um realize that this is an unfolding evolving it is a web and that it no one knows what's happening but everyone's trying their best and that this is the old system is very flawed and it can be quite painful working within it but that it doesn't get changed through smashing and criticism and judgment I don't think I think that I I can feel you know there's that saying like be the change you want to see in the world I can I have an embodied sense of what that change feels like when you can be it and it's much more gentle around like you know the way I speak to the person on the phone that tells me that my phone bill is overdue and being able to be patient and kind and slow and conscious rather than busy busy trying to change the world and actually just kind of you know like being too stressed and too busy and too, almost too critical of everything to actually stop and um, realize that the the new world is is kind of born in each of us through actually being able to just kind of let go a bit of the hardcore um, sense that we know the answer and being able to rest a bit more in knowing that it's a it's a, a web created process that we're all on and that not any one of us has the answer and no one of us is trying to mess it up for anybody else um and I think that's my big learning that it's not I don't have all the answers Mm. um is the main learning can I jump in there's Mm. so many questions to ask here um one of the things that I really love the word that one of the words that you used was about being rebellious and the quality of that rebellion um especially in the context of what you've just described as kind of the quality of presence that you bring to interactions, the kindness, the compassion, the humility, knowing about one's own judgments, idealisms, etc., and being quite um, 
I think there's also maybe a, a sort of a sense of equanimity with the reality of each of our internal landscapes uh, and being compassionate around judgments that come up. But the quality of rebellion, when when you're thinking about this old, painful, fractious system, way of relating, and your work within this web of change, how do you identify the qualities that allow you to rebel? Like, what is it that gives you that sense of, okay, I want to rebel against this, and here are some of the ways that I might do that. If you can talk a little bit more about the rebellion. <laughs> I'm super curious mm. about that. Yes. Well, I suppose, in a way, part of the rebellion was around having the confidence to um, take some space and that is a double-edged sword. It has, you know, both good and bad. But I said, I was always just quite confident growing up. I was always, I, you know, I did the debating society and I was always like, you know, wanting to have my say. Um, and then I think in a way the rebellion, I don't think I was particularly rebellious in, I mean, I was as a teenager. I was just a kind of naughty teenager pushing the boundaries, but I was in the NHS world and when I was training as a clinical psychologist, I, I didn't feel rebellious then because I felt like I was part of something that was very, you know, the phrase like egocentric. it very much like sat with me in a way that I felt like, yeah, there's nothing much to push against here. This is, I like the values. And then I think in academia, that's when I became more kind of rebellious. And I suppose rebellious in the sense of, um, Thing, okay, like I'll give one example. So some of the research I did was around connectedness, a qualitative um, paper that I did um, in one of the first psilocybin trials. From that came this work around wanting to measure connectedness, connectedness to self, other, and nature. And um, I, I called the measure after myself. I called it, I called it the Watson scale. <laughs> I'm so glad you did. Which was really rebellious. Well, you know, it was met by loads of criticism. I had, you know, lots of people saying, wow, I can't believe you're naming after yourself. That's such a narcissistic thing to do. <laughs> like, wow, like, that's so blatant. No one like, would say that about all of the scales about men. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, frankly. I know. I know. Sorry, yes. carry on. <laughs> Just... I know. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, and that was kind of why, one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. I was like, lots of scales are named after people and many of those people are men and I'm going to just, Go you know. It. But also there was something around um, being quite rigid about it. And like, it, it's, it's complicated because it goes again, you know, that very flexible way of being collaborative. It was, a, it was counter to that. It was me saying, no, I'm sticking my flag in the sand and I'm going to, you know, hold on to my territory. But the reality is that that was coming from a place of self-defense. Mm -hmm. It was coming from a place of, I don't feel safe and I don't feel part of a safe system where I feel like my work is going to be recognized and held with the kind of, I don't think things are going to be fair, so I'm going to hold on. So it, I think often that kind of rebelliousness can come from an injustice, that when we don't feel safe in the, you know, I suppose if you look at the world of work as a kind of like microcosm, like think about your family of origin and then your world of work and then the world at large, it's like, how safe am I in the world? How safe am I that my needs are going to be respected and that I'm part of a truly reciprocal safe system? 
And so because of that, I, I didn't feel it. So the rebelliousness was coming from holding on to what's mine in a kind of defensive way. And I think often um, there is that sense, isn't there, of rebelliousness coming from a from injustice and coming from anger and coming from there needs to be some kind of energy or fire behind that sense of like, screw you, no, I'm going to do it a different way. So it's, I like the energy of it in a way, like I think that can be a good thing. And I am glad that I named the measure after myself. But um, I can also see how it just polarizes, you know, that that I, I, I again, it's that embodied feeling of like, I, I want to be in a world where I don't have to rebel, you know, um, Can I, where, where there's, where there's, I want to kind of dive into the seed of that too. Cause you were saying, you know, you're, you're diving into the ocean, right? You get into this muddy layer, which is, feels like it's ac- academia, it's systems, it's patriarchy. You've just described really clearly how this um, atmosphere of scarcity makes people want to claim and defend because there's a sense of, it's not safe. So I'm curious about the the transition that may have occurred to you in the mud, right? So you move into that academic space. You think it's going to be because of the because of the theme of it. And I had a very similar experience. You know, I think going to my first uh, relational psychoanalysis conference where nobody was getting on with each other. I'm like, we're relational psychoanalysts. Like, why are that? Why are everybody like? at each other's throats, what's going on, right? And it's really a knockback, right? Because you think, okay, psilocybin or psychedelics or relational psychoanalysis, this is going to be the thing that opens people up. Therefore, all the people that are engaged in it are going to be open-hearted and welcoming. (laughs) So it's a, you know, it's it's a double knockback, right? So some people would be like, oh, I can't, or they would assimilate or you know, leave and go elsewhere. You did something else. Like what, what did you find, you know, in the knockback? And then how did you get through that muddy Hmm. bit? Hmm. Well, so I guess what I found was realizing that and and I suppose I should also give the caveat as well, because, you know, like, sometimes when I talk about this, it makes it sound like, you know, because obviously I was working, people know that where I was working, it makes it sound like it's a kind of criticism to the team of people that are working there now. And it's it's actually not at all. And I do actually think that they're, you know, that actually, and speaking about the the Imperial Psychedelic Research Team now, like they're an ama- like they're actually a very kind of caring units of people things have changed I think as well but but they are like they are very kind and caring people and I do think they are they are doing amazing work so this isn't in no way a kind of criticism of them it was a, a moment in time different people were there and we can also probably say that in, I think in brackets that systems are different from people right that people inside yeah. of a system are suffering and find themselves behaving in ways because of the system right mm-hmm. You, you go out and have a beer with them or a coffee and it's not, they're, they're not nasty systemic <laughs> monsters, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly, exactly. That, that was, it was very much the system, not the people. I think that's really important to say um, that all the people that I work with them, you know, they, they're, they're all really lovely, lovely human beings, but there is something about that system and the way it was operating, the pressures of 
yeah, the pressures of the of the system. Um, but I, I think I did, you know, it, there, there also was um, a, a moment of like a real sense of like, I cannot believe how I felt chewed up by the system. I felt like I kind of gave my all to it, you know, like gave all of my time and my work and my dedication. And then essentially it was like, we're just going to take the data and all the work you've done and kind of talk about it. And you can just kind of go now, like, Mm, and it was that same old story of like a, a woman doing all the work for years. And then all of your findings and the data gets taken by the system and you just like you're done now. Thank you very much. And it's like this was my baby. It feel it felt like a baby was taken from me, and like it, the adoptive parents like pretended I didn't exist. Wow. You know, it was it was a real sense of betrayal. So it, the the betrayal I felt and the rage I felt at a particular moment in time, it was at the beginning of COVID, was so strong that it led me to an absolute sense of like. I cannot believe this is happening. I remember just standing in like the garden. It was, I had this connection with the tree because I was just wailing and crying and standing with my hand on the tree trunk and just like this absolute disbelief that I couldn't believe that, that this had happened. I felt so, and you know, since that time, I can also see all, again, all of my own wounding and all of my own patterns from childhood and why, you know, my own father wound, my abandonment wound from my father was being repeated and repeated and repeated. And I was like, why do I keep putting myself in this situation? But but it's very much about me, not just about them. And it's about the system. So, you know, and I wouldn't change any of it now. But in that moment of like wailing by the tree, feeling absolute sense of like betrayal and anger at the system for for, for spitting me out the way it did um, and felt very callously. And... Um, in that moment, I just had that sense of like, we, I just need care. And there needs to be somewhere, some place where it's about gentleness. Like when you feel broken by hard edges that you've been like, I felt like I was in some kind of machine where I was like being, you know, like pushed through some kind of like cogs in a wheel. And I just like squeezed, you know, and I just felt like there needs to be a place where we can just be nice to each other and caring and slow and long-term. And there needs to be a place of transformation and change, but where it's kind and caring. And so I think that was the moment where my project now, which is ACER Integration, which is a community for people that have done psychedelic experiences, and they want to integrate their experiences with each other with kindness and care and this sense of like community and holding and accountability and gentleness and home and safety, all of those things. So it very much came from my own feeling of like, I am a feeling so isolated and, um, and myself very disconnected. So, you know, this, this ACER community was, I absolutely created it for my, for myself. It was like, I was like, this is what I need. And if other people need it too, then amazing. But it was, it was my own healing process and it has been, it's been running for a few years now. And 
every year we go through a different tree and the tree has a lesson. And still, as we cycle around the 12 trees, all of the learning that I'm talking about, my understanding of my own wounding has all come from this community process. So, you know, I've had lots of therapy in my life, but it's been this community healing process of safety, non-judgment, which has allowed me to look at my own stuff in the sense of like, we are all very flawed, like trees. We have wobbly bits and knobbly <laughs> bits and scars and missing branches. And that's what makes us beautiful. So yeah, that's, that's the direction was in the direction of gentle, gentleness, collaboration and, um, care is that is that something that arose like so you know you like you you get the opposite of that right you get the opposite of that your baby's taken your adoptive parents ignore you you're like out in the woods right and then now however many years later this is you have this thing was that did that i was did that idea precede was it sort of like a, a ghost of an idea did it come as an inspiration did you see something was it a development you know when you're by a little bit about how that came yeah to being, being. Yeah. yeah yeah no it was a development i think <clears throat> at the time i wouldn't have realized how much i needed it it felt like it was it was a natural development because in the in the psilocybin trials um, in those clinical trials of, of psychedelic therapy, you can't really give integration to therapy afterwards because you just you're testing a drug, not the therapy. So they have to give people the drug without very much support afterwards. So it was very clear that the patients in the trial needed more support. And so I originally set up an integration circle for the people in our trial to say like, hey, let's just meet on Zoom. And it was COVID, so they couldn't access other support systems. So we just had this weekly Zoom group of a sharing circle for the people that had been in the trial to meet each other, share their experiences. And they, they, you know, they're still meeting now and years later, they've formed a very strong um, group and they are the backbone of, of ACER because they are, they are now facilitators within ACER. Wow. So very much it was this kind of developmental um, pathway where it all came out of the psilocybin research. That's why it was developed. But what's, I guess, happened in more recent year is that after having had the like intensity of working in a clinical trial, and then I went to work for Synthesis for a while to try and set up a clinical program. And we had a kind of pilot version of what ACER is starting there too, because the, the leadership were very keen on providing something for people with mental health challenges, not just people that were doing retreats for, you know, kind of creativity or exploration but actually offering something that was really there for people that were really really suffering uh, which was a beautiful intention so you know but lots of stress and kind of trying to set it up in different places and then it's only been in the last year that I've gone from being completely so stressed that I wasn't even aware of my own emotional state to be quite honest to being regulated enough and less on overdrive to actually start doing the work myself. And so I set it up for other people. And then this year, I it I did it myself. Isn't it, isn't it extraordinary how within the stress and the dysregulation and sort of the, the feeling of betrayal and rage that these things that we we try to avoid, they can 
you spoke earlier like of the mud they can be the most fertile territory for something extraordinary emerging and a gift to yourself which you can only receive once you've been through the shit show (laughs) it's bonkers how this happens yeah there's it seems like there's no other way like you have to kind of you know I was actually talking to somebody from within the ACER community because people are doing lots of wonderful projects. Their first cohort are nearly finishing. This wonderful woman who's doing this amazing project, but she was talking about her journey of kind of, she was referring to it as like the queen's journey. So she actually met someone that said to her that you're on the kind of this like queen initiation. And when you look at her, you're like, she's definitely a queen, (laughs) beautiful queen. Um, But she's, you know, what she was talking about and she said, and so they said to me, prepare to have an absolute heartbreak, suffering, horrendous journey now, because that has to be the initiation. If you want to be a leader, if you want to be in a position of service, expect to have your heart fully pummeled, broken, smashed to bits. And then you come back from that with at least some awareness of, of what that feels like and some humility and some um, caution and less of the kind of gung-ho, you know, you you get kind of, um, you know, there's less of that kind of like, we're going to change the world and it's great energy and more of the kind of like, you know, if I can just sit and have a cup of tea for five calm minutes, <laughs> that's enough. Yeah. that's like heaven like I don't your your ambitions <laughs> become much more around just like the little the little things rather than the great big ambitions I think I don't know if this is going to derail the conversation but as you're talking earlier about um so it was the costume of highly evolved enlightened humans <laughs> and I was thinking of all of the folks that populate TikTok and Instagram and this is gonna. This is my own judgment coming out, but um, who are very, very many of them, very, very young. I'm going to assume, perhaps rightly or wrongly, that some of these folks are repeating wisdom that they've heard elsewhere without having to have these initiations themselves. And it just it kind of misses this saltiness that you get when you hit a, a really difficult place or talk about the bedrock, and then you have to clamber your way out. Um, and the piece around humility is something that is so clearly missing in so many of these discussions and mm. so many of these systems, the sense of actually we're in it together and it's a constellated or web-based approach that exists that's also going to be able to help us to creatively move into um, perhaps a healthier way of living, relating, being. It was more, I suppose, a comment, but really interesting how you've woven those things together. Um, I don't know if you have any comments or if you want to ask a question. Well, I I actually had a similar (laughs) thought in mind. I I was thinking about different kind of myths around this kind of material. So, you know, one of the myths is, you know, if, if an angel whispers into your ear and you've got a vocation, then, you know, positive thinking and your, your, uh, your passion will get you there, right? That's kind of maybe more like the TikTok myth, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of think po- positively, right? But then there's also like the entrepreneur's myth as well. And of course, there's truth to some of these myths, right? Like the entrepreneur's myth is like, uh, you'll be working, you know, 23 hours a day, you're going to be run ragged, like mm-hmm. you're going to give all of yourself and it's going to fail 80% of the time. The NHS myth, right? It's collaborative or it's too big or it's, you know, impoverished or it's stressed out. Again, I'm not saying myth isn't false, right? But it sounds like you kind of 
um, by going through different mythic journeys. And I'm not sounding a bit like Joseph Campbell here, <laughs> which is not really my intention. <laughs> but um, and I like I got a lot of space for Joseph Campbell. But it's like almost like you had to pick up your NHS piece. You had to pick up your patriarchy mm-hmm. academic piece. You had to be knocked back by that in order to assemble something that you have assembled, which I imagine also is going to reinvent itself and come, you know, you have an expectation about how that's going to be. And then you get disappointed and then you have to rework. And maybe you could say something about, you know, now that it's, did you say three years in or, or no, one year in? Well, it's one year in as Acer, but it's been running in different forms now since 2020. So yeah, okay. three years in, it's been evolving, but one year in its kind of current, like public facing. Right. Um, so w- <clears throat> what might you say about n- now that you have time for a tea, or maybe you're just starting to have time for a tea, <laughs> and it's road testing, right? Uh, what are you What are you hearing about? Um, where it gets hung up, where the potentialities are, how you shift, you know, how you carry on inventing, Mm. maybe without wearing yourself out, or maybe you haven't learned the bit about not wearing yourself out yet. I don't (laughs) know. Do tell us, we'd love to hear. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm incredibly lucky to work with the amazing Lee Mendeloff, who I know that we, we have this friend in common, and she has been a great teacher and huge support and actually... So Lee had an experience of having a, she wouldn't mind me saying she talks about it publicly so that other people like me can learn from her. She had quite a serious burnout with physical permanent damage as a result of it. And so she, what she went through has, um, you know, such a heavy lesson for her to have had to pay with, with her body. But the, the lesson of it has been fully, fully received, you know, so there's no, so there's a level of, that within Acer, we're a startup, you know, we don't have any money. We're, you know, in a way, there is that temptation to do the kind of like absolute, you know, 23 out of the 24 hours working. But, but we don't, you know, we don't. And we we try to take care of each other and we try and like work, you know, kind of four day week, even when that's really hard. And, you know, I have a daughter and Lee is completely understanding of how that impacts on everything. And, so yeah, there's a lot more space for tea and time for tea, even though there's loads of work we should have done and could have done. And, you know, the list of things that we could have done to make it more this and more that are very long. But ultimately, you know, and Lee is just like one of those people that she does the jobs of about five people in one person's <laughs> Big job. Big up so to she Lee. Does but, Lee's great. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But she, she does do so much, so much work in a way, like she's incredible. Like, so I... Yeah, she has, we're cheating a bit. Having Lee means that we're kind of cheating because it is like she's a bit of a, she's a bit of a superwoman. But she, um, you know, I feel very lucky. But we have, we have this kind of sense of, um, yeah, that it's not, it's, it's not, we, it's slow it's organic we haven't done any we haven't had any vc money at all we haven't done any advertising or promotion or anything like that which means that it's very small and sometimes we're like mm, um, is this sustainable because you know it's kind of 
yeah, we're we're very much at the other end of like profit making kind of you know scaling. We're at the very much the end of like labor of love and experimenting. But that does bring an energy to it of the va- you know that sense of values and we're doing what we love and we're doing it because we believe in it. So there is that you know it's completely values driven. It's completely about what we think the community will enjoy, and it's very very reciprocal and reflexive with the community. So it's very co-created. Um, we have in the community lots of therapists and most of them are way more experienced than me or Lee so there is that sense of really understanding that this I I mean I suppose because I had a psychedelic thing beforehand I do you know I'm maybe seen as like leading it or the figurehead of it because that makes kind of sense so that people understand what it is or for exposure but the reality is that it absolutely isn't that way it's much more it is it is co-created the 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 workshops we have the meetings are you know I learn as much as anybody else and we had this we had a book club last night and we were reading this amazing book called the abolitionist's handbook by Patrice Cullors she's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter it's an amazing book talk about rebellious abolitionist handbook (laughs) it's like full on But we just had the most wonderful, wonderful, rich discussion from people's lived experience, someone that grew up in apartheid in South Africa. I mean, just the the weight of that conversation, talking about racism from people's lived experiences. And at the end of the conversation, I just left it feeling so amazed by what happens when people from all over the world are in a sharing circle with safe boundaries, where it's not about therapy, where you're all just there to share Mm. And you feel safe to share because you've known each other for months because it's like a year-long process. So, you you know, you feel safety with each other. And the learning that can happen when we just listen to each other from that place of compassion and care and what somebody shares and you can see everybody sitting with their hands on their <laughs> hearts. And it's not that kind of phone, like pretending I've got my hand on my heart, but it's like you can feel the heart like radiating in this room. And it's, I have such a belief that, those kind of circles, those kind of spaces, um, when people can really feel safe enough to really listen to each other, that that's kind of, that's, yeah, that's the future, I hope. We need more of it. So I want to I wanna ask about that because you mentioned safe boundaries and so these, these things are kind of interconnected. So I'm going to try and weave these constellated elements together. But there's there's something around the safe boundaries, the... Um, decision to not engage in a pattern that would result in burnout. So working four days a week, including in your life, the fact that you are looking after a young daughter with someone who is presumably working in a way so as not to experience burnout again. So it's completely different terrain, while also having to live in a system where we have to pay the bills. There are certain... um, dynamics that we still have to engage in even if we might want to be living in a different way and so I'm, I'm curious about the quality of risk taking that comes in and perhaps they're connected where the people in the group with the safe boundaries are able to step in with greater presence open-heartedness and listen to and respond to sometimes quite challenging emotionally charged stories experiences grief rage love, loss, all of these things, and how maybe, and maybe this is sort of not connected, but I feel like there is a thread here, 
how that quality of risk taking connects with your risk to try something mm. different and to say, you know what, I'm going to go a different path and create something that has a different quality than the established systems that you've come out of, while also making sure somehow that it supports you financially. How are those, mm. yeah. I don't know, maybe that's a bit of a garbled question with too many layers. It's so important because it's and it's very, very timely for now. So I guess there is that sense of, you know, when something doesn't feel optional, like, you know, the Instagram idea of the angel coming along, whispering in your in your ear and you're like, oh, I'm going to do this. Like most people's lived experience of like coming into contact with like, you you know, what you got to do. It's like, it's like, oh God, really? You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, oh my God, do I have to do this? And it's like, yes. And you find- There's going to be an Excel document involved in this at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And yeah. Exactly, and it's just like, oh god! I mean, you know, it's like heavy, it's scary. There's no map forward. I mean, yes, there, there's no terrain. It is very scary. There's no stability. It's hair raising, absolutely hair raising. And yeah, I guess it doesn't feel like an optional thing. So that sense of like when you when you're in the sharing circles and you see the way people are sharing, and when you when I think about what the tree cycle has meant to me and how more and more people are going to be doing psychedelics and not having a culture around mm. how to integrate that because we don't have a living culture because it got cut off so long ago and stamped out and how important it is to create the holding infrastructure, holding culture for helping us transition through these times of transformation, like the, the need for not just ACER, but for a whole ecosystem of infrastructures caring infrastructures like we don't have infrastructures of care we have infrastructures around profit and competition but we don't have infrastructures around like proper infrastructures around collaboration and that they could be so amazing and life will be so much easier when we have these structures that we don't even know we've been missing them we've been living impoverished Mm. without them thirsty all those ways of connecting with each other and for those ways of people who are isolated coming into that sense of like belonging and home and tribe and all those things. So it feels like it's almost like I see it as an image of like in a kind of gray world, which we've been so used to and indoctrinated to that we haven't realized how how sad and dangerous that that system actually is and how how damaging to life forms and damaging to to us and the web we're in when you when you feel something come in that's like a color you know it's like you have to follow that color you can't Mm. it's like a little strand of like a really pretty pale blue and you're like ah you have to follow it you can't to extinguish that color would just be to just be so devastating I'd rather just so it is financially precarious and I haven't been able to pay myself so I've had to do consultancy work around my other previous psychedelic research in order to survive which is goes against the self-care not to working too hard rule because I'm kind of doing two jobs in a way um and it is a question that we have all the time and at the moment we've been saying you know we've done it for a year as a as as ACER thinking we're going to do this without venture capital funding I took a personal loan to 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 do it and we really held on to this story of we can do it you know the universal support us and we're now at that moment now of thinking okay, well, you know, we 
we need to pay ourselves properly at some point. You know, how much longer can we do this? And so starting to think around the reality that actually doing something like this to grow it to the size that, you know, not growing it fast, but so that people can access it and so that it can be truly sustainable. I'm not sure if we can do it without having to having to get some kind of external investment and, you know, doing in a way, doing it properly. So we're sitting in that space now that the previous me would have been like, no way, going to, you know, chain myself to the railings on this, like not taking any VC money. Where does the money come from? What have they invested in before? Like very judgmental about people and where money comes from and very um, critical of, of wealth, actually. And then... Very interestingly, I, I mean, this is really going into personal sharing, but I had been a single mum for a long time. But then at the beginning of this year, I started a relationship with somebody who wouldn't, you know, like of all the kind of people to be in a relationship with somebody that I met on a dating app. So I had, you know, <laughs> just met, met him and went for coffee. And then it turns out, surprising that of all the social groups that I would have the most difficulty with accepting, he was from a kind of... Um, very very privileged I don't even know what you'd call it but like kind of aristocratic family line and I've struggled with it with with locked horns with it I've challenged it I've criticized it I've you know but there's something around it that I'm trying to make my peace with okay there I can't just go around being prejudiced and anti the system in fact there may be ways that I have to dance with it Mm. and and allow myself to you know because if you fall in love with somebody that's from that world it's like you can either just say no to the person and the love and the world and just say no no you're unethical I think you're wrong or you just have to allow yourself to say there must be some fruitful learning for both of us and some kind of something. So I'm starting to think that after lots of risk-taking and being in a very precarious financial position, I might have to do a pitch deck Mm. for VC (laughs) funders. And it will be my my, my own work to be able to sit there and say, this doesn't have to be poison this may be what is required for this beautiful thing to grow and you know in the field beyond right and wrong Mm. it is full of creativity beyond my judgments around the men of the system of which he's very much a figurehead um it's so great to get you And Midias race, you know, like in the middle of things, because, you know, it's like you're about to make this change. You're starting in this relationship. You're dealing with these, the yin and yang of existence. Right. And I, and I feel like it's really, I mean, I find Freud's idea actually of the, of the reality principle really helpful. Like at some point, everybody bumps up against the reality principle and the, the capacity for people to criticize uh, decisions that one has to make in the face of the reality principle is very easy and you don't know it unless you're on the inside, right? It's great to host a space, but if you can't pay for the hosting, right, you can't, you can't host the space yeah. and you can't, well, you can hope as much as you like, but you're going to have to make some tough 
decisions, right? And it feels like there's something here that's in constant development for you and I imagine for everybody else about holding gray areas, about re-evaluating values in a sense in relation to the reality principle. And it feels like the danger always is, well, then you've sold out. Right. And maybe, and maybe there was a sense of that with psychedelics, how, how psychedelics, you know, got claimed by convention, right? Okay. Well now psychedelics is sold out. So you find another place. Um, but I wonder, well, I guess you've kind of said, it. I guess it's, you've kind of said it like how, how one um, balances between hoping to contain or create a space that kind of like that doesn't have any of that stuff in it. But it's unrealistic because the, the the nature of reality is that you have to engage with the reality principle, which will make demands of you that you may not wish to satisfy. Right? But there's also something here, which is because there's a kind of desire to when you've been so hurt by someone or something, there's a desire at some point to take the defensive stance, like you said, to stake the claim. And I think that's powerful because it, it creates a distinction between what you want and what you don't want or um what you value but then there's also something around kind of taking that defensive stance then splits those two components into opposition so it's kind of perpetuating that again and so there's something around what does it mean to take a dance partner that's maybe got a completely different rhythm but there's something there's somewhere where you can dance together and then the and you you've touched upon this a few times like being able to come to a place where you can meet someone else who's also stuck in their own system, who's maybe, maybe whose who's own longings and desire for some of the things that you embody are not being met. And what does it mean when you enter into reciprocity like you do in the sharing circles where you can meet together and there can be difference that's welcomed in and digested so that everyone else comes out with something that's richer than if you hadn't engaged in the first mm. place? Yes. <laughs> So much, so much. It feels like everything you said now just feels like that is the kind of the, the waters I am. And well, both both of those ideas around the reality principle and accepting that, but also that idea of these two opposites kind of coming into contact and swimming together rather than dancing with each other, rather than staying polarized. And I think it feels so important to do that because um, one of the things do feel very polarized at the moment in a lot of places I think because of you know the internet I think we, we do get more easily polarized and I guess we have less face-to-face sitting around the fire so there's more it's easier to kind of get into our echo chambers and you know stay away from the other sides but I one of the things that we talked about in our book club last night was Patrice Cullors in this book the abolitionist handbook talks about this beautiful analogy of when when there has been conflicts between people, like diff- major difference between people in an organization or friends or whatever, there's been conflict. And you can either just let the wound heal passively and it just heals in its own way and just leave it and it will heal with the scar and it might get infected. It might take ages to heal and never really is properly healed to get a bit of like sand in it or something. Or you can clean the wound. You go in there, you clean it and it really hurts to clean the wound because it's raw skin and you have to go in. Mm. And it's like, hideously painful but then you clean the wound and then you have to put a dressing on it and then you have to change the dressing every day it's so much work but then at the end of it you have actively engaged in this process and you don't have a scar and your skin 
heals in a really beautiful way. You might have a scar, but, you know, it, it heals healthily. And I feel like, you know, it, in the psychedelic world and the academic world, there was a really strong rupture. You know, there was a deep, deep wound that never got a chance to be healed. And I so wanted to go in and excavate that wound. You know, I really wanted to, but there was never really the opportunity to do that. And I feel that many of us kind of carry around that, like almost like in a bag, the times in our lives where we've either been wronged or done the wronging, or usually a bit of both. I mean, certainly in my situation, I had a whole lot of responsibility for what happened. But whether you feel that you've been hurt or you're the one that's hurt the other, and then it never really got fully excavated. And so then you just polarize further and you stand in your separate things and you kind of feel annoyed at what the other person represents or what the organization or the group of people represents. And there's something around doing this relational work of, ah, yes, so you and me have very different views. And I think about this in my relationship as well, my personal relationship. We come from very opposite sides. We have very different attachment styles. We come from completely different worlds, total opposites. And it's like, okay, let's do this dance consciously Let's learn from each other. And so rather than polarizing and just going, no, you're different. I don't like the way you do that. It's like actually learning to, every time there's a wound, clean it out and do that work of of healing it. And it feels that within ASA, we're going to have to develop, because at the moment it's quite a small community and we haven't really had ruptures very much. But one of the growing edges is going to be, what are our, procedures around conflict resolution, transformative justice, hearing each other when conflicts arise, certainly in the psychedelic world and in in our communities and cultures as psychedelics come in, or just even without psychedelics, we desperately need structures for conflict resolution in our communities. And rather than just going to our opposite corners of the room of doing that dance with each other. And so that feels like in a way that, that's kind of, that feels like that's going to be my work now in my relationship, within ASA, just within my, within everything, just how to, what are the skills we need? What are the people we need? What are the tools? So that when we are triggered into those kind of ruptures, that we can really open-heartedly heal it and keep that sense of respecting the other and not needing to other other them and push them away. Mm. It's really beautifully put. There's a lot of, the word hasn't been said, but there's a lot of equanimity. It feels Mm -hmm. like it's quite central, the development of equanimity to sit with the discomfort, to sit with values that previously you couldn't sit with, you know, Mm -hmm. to wait and see, to make space. It's yeah. a tough one yes. to ask for, right? <laughs> it's a practice. It really is. It really is. I wonder if we should kind of start moving yeah. into, yeah? This is such an enjoyable conversation. I'm so enjoying this. Yeah, there's so much. I mean, and there's it, so I, much there. thank you. And it's so it's so great that, oh. you know, we're still in the middle of things. We're always in the middle of things. You yeah. know, that's the other myth. Like, tell us how, you know, you achieved your great successful thing and it's done and you're yeah. satisfied and you go home. Yeah. But like, if you think about like, if you could pull one life lesson or insight, just just one, one because pal. it's a, a podcast <laughs> or video, yeah, um, from this particular process, you know, seeing your way through clinical psychology, through the, um, mm-hmm. the through the psychedelics first part A, and then through academia, and then through developing ACER, if you're able to consolidate, kind of like, 
okay, this is a this is a big one that I've learned. Maybe you're still learning it, right? It doesn't have to be a lesson learned, but what, what would you say would be a single life lesson drawn? It would, the, the one that feels strongest now is that I do not know the answer and that I have the tendency to think that I do and the tendency to, um, yeah, just to, to, to judge. And that there's something about slowing down is the really important kind of practical part of it. That in order to actually hear the other person and see them and recognize the importance of what they are holding or viewing and understanding their perspective and that it's just different to mine and it doesn't mean that either of us is better or has the answer more that in order to actually hear that it requires slowing down in a major way because in the pace of our modern lives in the pace of my life there was just no leeway for taking that time so I was just operating as a kind of like problem solving slash judgment machine. <laughs> this is good. This isn't good. Do this, do that, do that. Bang, 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 bang. And just like this kind of cortisol whirlwind. And by the end of the day, yeah. like just kind of. <clears throat> and that's opposite operating in an absolute um, like survival mode. And we know that in survival mode, we don't make good decisions and we don't, we don't have time to understand and resonate with the emotions of the other because they're the attacker. Mm-hmm. So we just need to like, you know, I was fully in defense. And it's not easy to slow down at all. And I'm still not very good at it. But that it's only in the more recent times where I have, have done some of that and I've taken more time for relationship and my personal life and parenting and really understanding the ways that I, um, that that kind of judgmental, fast paced, impulsive fire energy can harm and hurt the other, whether it's my daughter who's like, whoa, my mum's a, you know, tornado mm. or, you know, a partner who's like, oh my gosh, like, whoa turn down the heat, it's like realizing that the force of the fire and that in order to in order to like not burn down the forest, I have to be able to sit to contain it myself and allow it not to just take over everything so that then I can really regulate myself enough, bring the fire down to a kind of like gentle simmer. So that rather than the kind of like passion, enthusiasm and doing everything all the time, which is so appealing, you know, I kind of want to work at that kind of pace. But but I think the lesson is in order to actually do that and make space for the other and make space for their experience and make space for their perspective, it requires slowing down doesn't just happen naturally. You can't just slow down and be able to engage more reciprocally with other people it requires huge sacrifice in terms of like massive projects that I've said no to, projects that I 
believe so much in and they're like a dream and I bet you both know this as well it's like projects land on your table you're like if someone had told me as a 15 year old that somebody would ask me to do this project I would have wept with joy Mm -hmm. and yes I'm going to say no Mm -hmm. and it's like oh pain (laughs) of like saying no for all of these beautiful things but it's like it's more important that I don't lose my temper because I'm overstressed and it's more important that I can make half an hour to hear that person rather than sending them a grumpy email. It's those little things of like, we, the relational container that we create, that we are part of is everything. What's the point in building all these projects and doing all these things if I can't, if I can't exist within a web that it feels safe mm. and grounded and truly reciprocal rather than me dominating it? So it's to tone down my fire and um and and bear the pain of saying no to all the things or most of the things that I really wish I could do. Yeah. God, just yeah, I'm getting body rushes listening to you talk about that and thinking, how much do I need to knock off my list? Because it's it's true. And, no. and as you're talking about fire, I was also thinking about the forest um imagery. I was imagining almost like you're tending to this fire that's contained that's within the clearing and then there's also space for the waters to run I don't know I just kind of you you took me to a very sort of what's Mm. the word like a wild place that's also lovingly tended to where the elements Mm. are in harmony somehow Mm. um so you mentioned earlier but maybe it's worth asking again that that through all of this process, with all of its pain and its beauty, you wouldn't have done anything differently. And I want to just kind of revisit that gently. Is there something that you would change? Or is part of where you are now, that kind of wholehearted accepting of everything having been as it is for you to be here? Love that question. (laughs) I think it's both. I think in a way I can really feel that sense of, you know, not a hair out of place here. And I you know, the most bitter bits have been the best medicine, like, you know, like ayahuasca. Like, <laughs> whew, doesn't taste nice. But, like, yeah, there are there are things now, not that I wish I had done it differently in the past, but that I would do differently if I was doing it now. And I think it it's partly kind of what I was saying around, like, the stress levels and the busyness and how much time I've had. But I think the main thing would be, that in the same way that I'm now thinking, oh, maybe my very high moral standards about um, ethics need to be a little bit more gentle because it might be that I have to make some reality principle kind of compromises and work alongside people that there might have been a time when I'd have thought, nope, <laughs> I'm not going to be on their advisory board because once upon a time their great-grandfather <laughs> was, you know, like, I was very, 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 very rigid in my sense of like who was good and who was not good. So I think the thing I would do differently now is um, in that world of like academia and kind of like the business elements of that, like the kind of um, companies that were part of that, I was very confrontational. I was very critical. I must have been an absolute nightmare to work <laughs> with because I was confident. We will not do it with this. We will not work with that person. We will not work with that person. And kind of like really taking people to task all the time. And when people had that 
when people would sometimes say to me, you know what, like, is this a bit immature? Because actually, we're all on the same side here. We're all trying to bring psychedelics to the world. So should we all just work together? Or do you have to like constantly like fall out with everybody about this or about that? And I was like, no, I have to fall out about this or about that. And, um, and at the time, I genuinely felt like I was doing it because I was sticking to my principles. And why was everyone else not sticking to their principles? And I really took credit for myself and pride in myself of being so principled. <laughs> and actually, when I look at it now, I think, yeah, that was so much of my own defences, so much of my own childhood wounding coming out in this kind of attack. And it was about so many other things other than what was actually happening in that situation. And I think if I could do that again, I think I would bring more of an energy of, well, I don't know about this because it doesn't fit that well with my value system, but I'm going to wait and see. And I'm going to trust that we're all trying our best and trying to do something good here. And I'm going to be a good team player as much as I can and try and kind of you know, and if I see something that I think is really bad, then I will, you know, I will relay that information in a way that is helpful and important. But I was coming with projections and assumptions rather than necessarily like having seen the evidence. A lot of the time I was coming with my own, um, my own prejudgments, I think. And I wonder if sometimes we can create the situations that we fear if we come in with such a strong, fearful sense mm. of what it's going to be. And I think my time in academia, like I already had a framework of being, you know, abandoned by a kind of um, toxic father figure. You know, that was already my kind of frame. So no wonder it played out. How much of that was me bringing that, you know? And I think being able to, to have done the having done the work I'm doing now and being able to just come to that place of like, I don't really know, like we're all trying our best and just all, you know, the kind of Alan Watts Chinese farmer story, like you never know. I was just talking how, about that you know, earlier. Like, no, I love it. Like you think things were a disaster, but you just don't know. And it might turn out to be good. And you think someone's terrible, but then there could be an exact, like, you could you could paint someone as like the worst villain ever as like you know toxic bond villain but then there could be a situation where that person in a kind of day-to-day interaction helps you so kindly and beautifully and I've seen these kind of things happen before that you can you have this sense of someone being this or that and then you have an interaction with them and you really feel down to the shared humanity that we have and if we are all one and we're all connected that's that's all of us that includes (laughs) you know (laughs) It includes Donald Trump, though, which I kind of really struggle with, <laughs> like, like, among others, among others. But yeah, I, I, it yes. uh, like, that's the part of the reality principle, right? Isn't it? It's like, the, yeah. that is the nature. Uh, we will we'll link, there's a great video um, with the Alan Watts mm. story that you're talking oh, about yeah. that we can link to in, oh, yeah. in the show notes. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. This is a, a related question also in limiting you to just one thing in these, these closing remarks but also relating to your own experience, right? So the question is, you know, what one piece of advice would you give to someone in a similar situation? And the the similar situation that I'd like to point to is when you feel squeezed by the system, right? Because everybody's going to have an experience of the individual versus whatever system, capitalism, academia, you know, family 
whatever. Do you think you could pull out one thing about how one finds a way through a system that maybe they can't change or certainly can't change all elements of it? Yes. I think to ask yourself, what, what am I longing for that, that I feel that the system is preventing me from having? Like, what's my longing and what's my pain? What is it that has been, feels like it's being taken or limited or prevented? And often it's like the grief and the love are the same, two sides of the same coin. So what is it that's hurting me? What's the flip side then? What does that show me I care about? What's my love here? What's my the thing that I need? And then to think about, okay, well, given that the system is in place now and I'm not going to be able to dis, like disassemble it all myself today, what thing can I create? It could be tiny thing, big thing, whatever, that is in honour of that love and is saying, my need is important. It's being neglected by the system and that's real. And my heart is telling me, my heart is giving me the feedback that this suffering I'm feeling is because there's a real thing that was important to me that is being neglected. But I can create something for that need, for that love. I can create it in some tiny way or a big way. And it doesn't have to be created overnight. You can do it very slowly. But by having that, you can counterbalance the, the, the deprivation that you feel and the nurturing of that same quality in your own in your own life in some way. And then I guess if you just start to bring more and more of your energy to the thing that you're creating and less and less of your energy to fighting the thing that's taking that need away, then after a while you probably don't really know. Like, And that's how the system crumbles not by us smashing it down, but by us creating these other things that we love that the system prevented us from having. And then all of our energy goes on creating those things. And then the system just kind of like, well, hopefully, I mean, maybe this is idealistic, but just kind of, you know, <laughs> it's just old. It's obsolete. Mm-hmm. it's obsolete because we create, like if you think about the financial system, imagine if we created a financial system that was around like supporting each other and helping people that needed a bit more, have a bit more and helping like, a system of safety and thriving like wow that would be amazing and then this other system based around like I don't even know what it's based on it would just be people wouldn't choose it anymore they'd Mm -hmm. choose the other one so create the new way even in a small tiny step and remind yourself that you're doing it and find another person that has that same dream or love or need and help each other by having a chat every once in a while about why it's important <laughs> and that you're not crazy to me that it's you know that's really clear and clarifying thank, amazing thank yeah um oh. i'm glad this isn't a really high def camera because you see my eyes welling up um this has just been really joyful um and moving and uh, I've realised that we didn't go into, and I, that wasn't really the point, I suppose, the depths of ASA and what it is. But if you're listening slash watching and you want to hear more, um, you can listen to an interview that I had with Roz on my podcast. Also, Rooted Healing, Veronica Stanwell, she had an interview with you too, which I would also recommend. It's a joyful interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and Amanda Scott, Accidental Gods, you can also listen there. So, Yes lots more to discover about your wonderful work um actually did you do it with Veronica Stemmel am I making that up no I was just I was just thinking I actually because I really want to meet her because we have a mutual friend of ours I was just thinking like 
I really want to talk to her, but no. I just, <laughs> just made that happen. happen. I just made that happen. It's like, well, now you have to. <laughs> Do it before we, we launch the podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yes, so funny. I think I just assumed. Yes, I want to. Because I met with her yesterday. Because um, we're doing both yeah, yeah, and with Sam, and, and then you came up in conversation in a very yeah. joyful way. And so in my mind, I was like, oh, that's already happened. Um, but yes. It's going to happen. You're just you're just existing on the parallel time time frame. But yeah, no, it will happen. And I can't wait. I just want to hear all about her work as well. So yeah. That's a conversation yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing. Um, so, well, do you have any closing sort of thoughts or a question that you wish we maybe had asked or a theme you you would have liked us to have touched on no I love this it was so what a lovely is I've really appreciated your both of your your comments and reflections actually it's it's been nice because it's been at this moment of like oh god like <laughs> lots of change and like big lessons and it's it's not I feel like I've had a therapy session oh, oh great <laughs> thank you um, and there was just one actually thing that I would love to, it's a book actually that I'd love to recommend to people. A big part of the, the lessons that I've been having around kind of relational stuff have come from reading an amazing book that's called Us, U.S. And it's written by somebody called Terence Real. And I hadn't heard of him before, but it's about individualism and you and me consciousness versus us consciousness. So it's about couple work but it's about so much more. I've recommended it to about 10 people and every person has come back in floods of tears saying, this is one of the most life-changing books oh, wow. I've ever read. It feels truly part of the new the new way and it is incredibly powerful. So yeah, Us by Terence Real. And you may, maybe, I don't know, you might want to interview him for the Hive podcast as well <laughs> because he is just, like his work is like, amazing amazing you know you're the second person to recommend this through very different circles of friends so it's always a good indication when it's kind of different pockets talking we'll we'll check that out um that's a lovely recommendation thank you and we will put uh we will put directions to these podcasts your website and various other things in in the show notes Mm -hmm. um where people can find you and roz uh it's been lovely, I think, for all three of us. So thank you so much uh, for taking the time to show up today for our for our podcast and contributing your experience in the middle of things. I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both so much and good luck with the rest of it. Thank you. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as we did. But that's not all there is to it. Wait, there's more? <laughs> yes, there is. Be sure to tune in to our next episode where Erin and I will be diving deeper into the themes that came up in this interview. That's right. In the next episode, Natalie and I will not only discuss the salient issues that arose here, but we'll also be pointing to models, theories, and practices from the world of psychology and behavioral science to help you make more sense of them so you can apply them to your own journey. And for those of you who are curious to learn even more, we have developed an online community where you'll be able to find more resources to explore and have opportunities to discuss this and other episodes with other community members in a forum and through live events and AMAs. In this, our first season of Time to Show Up, we're making all this great content freely available to the public. But next season, material from the review episodes, along with the great resources and opportunities for community members to connect, learn, and grow, will only be available by subscription. 
And since we know that listening to material itself isn't enough to facilitate desired change, we've designed this community specifically to give you the support you need to take your learning even further. And if you join us at the start of our journey and sign up before April 5th, 2024, we're offering a no-strings three-month membership for free at timetoshowup.org. That's right. And if you choose to stay on with us, which we hope you will, we'll give you a 25% early bird discount just to say thank you. If you're tuning in after that April date, don't worry, you can still try out a free two-week membership with no obligation. There are different packages to choose from, and you can find out more and get in touch at timetoshowup.org. Thanks for tuning in. And see you for the review.